Thanks for listening to our Spirit Radio podcast. Don't miss out. Subscribe today. Find out how at spiritradio.ie. The best of the morning show with Wendy Grace on Spirit Radio. We are experiencing drought at the moment and of course there has been a little bit of rain but a lot more is needed to get water levels back to where they need to be. That's why many homes across the country and indeed businesses as well are currently experiencing water restrictions. Jack Parr of the Irish Times chatted to me earlier on in the week to explain the restrictions and what might happen next. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, it's, it basically leads on from the kind of fantastic weather we've had over the last month or so. Um, which has really, you know, kind of racked Irish waters, the supplies across Ireland's reservoirs, the lakes um, across Ireland were at you know, kind of all-time low levels, um, and the amount of water people were using was at an all-time high, so it was kind of the perfect storm in terms of Ireland's kind of old water network was really put under strain over the last few weeks of fantastic weather. So Irish, Irish water kind of has to bring in these several emergency measures to try and conserve water and just try and bring the amount of water that's being drawn down from the system uh, to more sustainable levels. Um, so, you know, originally they announced, you know, a, national, a hose pipe ban for Dublin, which was, you know, a ban on using your garden hose to wash your car, water your plants. That was then extended nationwide, um, the nationwide hose pipe ban. And then, so now we're kind of seeing more nighttime restrictions in water. So a lot of Dublin has been... Um, has been put under this conservation order. I think, as you said, it's from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, you know, water supply reduced to a trickle in part. Uh, Dublin city centre as well, which has kind of uh, affected a lot of hotels and restaurants have kind of, um, I suppose, fearing that, you know, after 10 p.m. that it's going to really hit the amount of dishes they can wash. Um, or the, and across the country as well, in parts of Galway, um, I've seen kind of serious water restrictions. So it's basically to try and when people, I suppose, aren't going to be using their taps as much when they're in bed asleep, Irish Water have really tried to, um, you know, to cut out the, I suppose, cut down on, on the usage. So in terms of what happens next, okay, because people are, Jack, getting this information about uh, water mm. is going to be restricted. Okay, that's something that's obviously enforced and then we're being asked to be kind of responsible ourselves, taking short yeah. showers, not washing our cars, not using hoses, all that sort of stuff. When is the next review going to take place, i.e. when are we going to know if all these things put together are actually working? Yeah, well, I suppose they have been working, you know, since we were at a, I think, for example, in Dublin, Irish Water say they can produce 615 million litres of water a day. Um, I mean, that was pretty much being used to the max at kind of the height of the the good weather. That's now kind of come down since a lot of the restrictions down to closer to 550, you know, million litres. So there has been a reduction, um, which has been a mix of, you know, people being more responsible and trying to use less water and also these kind of, I suppose, conservation efforts and emergency measures from Irish water. So it has kind of been, I suppose, dropping but the problem Irish Water say is because we're still in such a period of dry weather and, you know, there's been hardly um, hardly a day's rain in the last few weeks and that Irish Water say they really need almost two to three weeks of kind of consistent rainfall to kind of build up a lot of those reservoirs and stuff like that and kind of restock the supply almost. So until that happens, it's kind of going to be touch and go. I mean, Irish Water, their senior management, I think, are meeting on um, Monday kind of review the nighttime restrictions that have been put in place across Dublin and I mean that may be simply just to kind of um, state that you know the situation is still kind of under pressure and they still need to keep those restrictions in force um, and they've said you know 
such has been the kind of the drain on the system and the reservoirs have been kind of so depleted that this could kind of keep having knock-on effects and kind of keep cropping up um, you know, into the autumn almost. Uh, I don't think there's um, been a suggestion that they'll keep um, all of the restrictions in place until autumn, but I think we're going to see this issue come up and raise its head up again and again in terms of this problem with the water system because we had you know, that, that month and a half almost of fantastic weather and drought and that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I found myself in the strange situation the other day, Jack, of when it was raining a little bit, going, oh, this is great, you know, because uh, thinking of, of the current drought that we're having, especially thinking of farmers and that across the country. Uh, so a lot mm-hmm. might actually depend. I think I, I heard Irish Water saying they'd need, we'd need two weeks of heavy rainfall. I mean, Heavy rainfall, yeah. <laughs> I never thought I'd be wishing for two weeks of heavy rainfall, but it but seems yeah, it's necessary. I think a lot of people would be in the same situation as yourself. It was raining on Sunday, I think, and I was, it was almost like you're in a... Uh, mainland European city looking at the, the rain coming up from the sky with uh, a surprise. In terms of then uh, what happens next, uh, as you say, we, we don't really know how long the water restrictions are going to to happen or, or stay in place for. So is it just a case of people have to stay kind of up to date with uh, Irish Water to know? Yeah, I mean, I think Irish Water's website is actually quite good. They have a lot of, you know, kind of easily accessible and kind of readable information um, for people if they want to kind of stay up to date. I mean, they have set, told us that the, the nationwide hosepipe ban will be in place at least until the, the 1st of August. Um, and then they're going to kind of review that at that stage. That might be lifted at that stage, or else it might be extended for another further period. But I think the best bet for people, you know, kind of wondering and kind of looking to be, you know, kind of conscious with the amount of water that they use is probably to... Um, you know, to stay up to date with, with irishwater.e. The best of the morning show with Wendy Grace on Spirit Radio. Father Tony Coote is currently participating in the Walk While You Can to raise funds and awareness for the Irish Motor Neuron Disease Association. He joined us in the show earlier on in the week to tell us his story and he started off by just telling us a little bit about himself. Yeah, um, I'm parish priest of um, Kimmacoda Mount Marion in South Dublin and in March um, I was diagnosed with motor neurons disease and like anyone who gets that kind of news I was shocked um, but I decided that rather than just be shocked about it let's do something about it and I discovered that the medication is 24 years old and there's only three nurses in the whole country um, looking after people with motor neurons that I would organise this walk from Letterkenny in Donegal to Bally the Hob in West Cork. So we're on the road at the moment. We're on the way to Tubbacurry and we've just left Sligo. So we're on the way to there, Wendy. It must have been a shock when you first learned, Father Tony, that you had motor neuron disease. It was an absolute shock. And the sense when I was first told by the neurologist that I had it, I actually collapsed on the floor because the adrenaline was going through my body and it was a terrible shock. Um, but since then, I've been adapting and it's a massive change in my life from somebody I used to play squash twice a week to um, being very dependent at the moment and quite disabled. So anyone throughout the country who has that kind of illness or knows anybody with it understands what I'm saying today, I'd say. And do you think people, for example, Father Tony, when you just talk about the lack of resources and the kind of medication and things that are available to people with motor neuron disease, was one of the things to just try and raise awareness? Because I think a lot of people would be quite shocked. Wow, there's only three kind of medical experts that can help people with motor neuron disease. It is. It's kind of a shame because the three nurses are paid by Churchgate Collections. And our wish would be that the government would make a move 
to fund those nurses and have more nurses for the simple reason, Wendy, that anybody with motor neurons, it's a very debilitating illness and it affects the families deeply and it puts a huge burden on families that these three wonderful nurses alleviate so much. But you can just imagine, if there were more nurses, then more care, and that would alleviate the burden uh, to a huge extent. So you must have had some interesting conversations on the walk so far. Tell us about the experience to date of the walk while you can. Well, we've had wonderful... All the, all the places we're staying along the route have been offered for free by people along the route. And one of the most moving things is I'm meeting families of people who've had motor neurons either currently or have died and they just wanted to come out and contribute to our fund but also just to share that and one of the stunning things about this trip so far has been the absolute kindness of all the people we've met and that that is in Irish people and it's just tapas and it has been fantastic it's great to hear just that people are so uh, supportive and positive. But what about they you, Father Tony? How has the walk been for you physically so far? Well, see, while I'm in, I'm in a thing called a mountain trike wheelchair and I've been pushed by different people who take turns um, pushing it. As you can imagine, the push is not that easy. Ireland is full of hills. But um, they're doing a great job and that gets me from place to place. Um, I want to be out in the air, in the walk and that's how meeting people if I was stuck in a car I wouldn't see anybody mm. and to me that would just be um, a waste of time In terms of just your your own faith what sort of an impact has A the news of your diagnosis had uh, in the first instance and just kind of on, ongoing especially as you've been doing this walk Well see a lot of people have said to me you know must really test your faith and interesting enough what I think is the suddenness of it has definitely shocked me. But I always think it's a great prophet, Abraham, who was promised all the time. He'd reached the promised land and never did. And yet he never lost his faith. So I am holding on to that faith that the God who I've always believed in is by my side. And that no matter what happens, I'm not alone in that true sense. So I've never felt... Um, my faith has been tested to the extent that I want to give it up. What I've done, it's reaffirmed it. And I've always believed that one day I will meet Jesus Christ face to face. And I've never been worried about that. Is that a choice, Father, that you make in terms of, um, on often over the years as I've done various interviews with people who've had a challenging news, whether it's to do with their health or losses, is you can kind of go one way, one of two ways. You can be brought closer to God or further away. How do you stay? Sorry, Wendy. Sorry, could you say that again, please? Just on the road here, I missed that question. No, no problem at all, Father. Just asking you in the in those challenges, and it's very inspiring just to hear the impact on your faith. What would be your advice to somebody who maybe um, is having a, a similar challenge? You know, they've been given difficult news about their health, and it can go two directions. It can bring you closer to God, but sadly, it can bring you further away. How do you stay on the on the right side, staying closer to God? Well, absolutely, Wendy, and I wouldn't blame anybody being angry with God, as the prophet Job pleaded with God for some help. I can imagine. Um, but all I'd say to people is that the God who has brought us into this world, has promised never to abandon us when Jesus said, I'm with you till the end of time. 
I firmly believe that even though I'm going through a difficult time and feel totally frustrated, that I, in a way, share the footsteps of Jesus who must have shared that frustration and was definitely feeling how difficult it was to face what he faced, but he did. The Best of the Morning Show with Wendy Grace on Spirit Radio. You might have seen on buses or billboards or indeed in Dunn stores some of the gorgeous kids involved with the 21 Faces campaign which is being run by the Down Syndrome Centre and the aim of the campaign is really to challenge the misconceptions about children who have Down Syndrome. I chatted to Lorraine Murphy of the Down Syndrome Centre earlier on the week and she just started off by telling me a little bit about the work that they do. Our long-term goal is to grow with the kids to independent or supported living so the kind of things we do, uh, we do baby massage and then we, we have a, a, a class called Team 21 Tots, which is a parent and toddler group. Uh, that goes on for about a year and a half, for about six months. And then the children move into um, a program called SKIP. It's a special kids intervention program, which prepares kids for uh, Montessori in school. And it's taught in little groups of maybe three or four children. And they come in once a week. And uh, while they're being taught, their parents are in another room watching everything on a screen, which is brilliant because they get to kind of see everything in action. and But also giving the kids a bit of independence at the same time. Absolutely, yeah. yeah it works very well. And I suppose the, the other lovely thing about that programme is that it, it can run for one or two years. So uh, the parents become, the, the groups stay the same and the parents become very good friends. And so do the children. So, so we, and then we also obviously um, provide vital intervention services such as speech therapy, occupational therapy and physiotherapy and they're one-on-one sessions and sometimes we do group sessions and summer camps. But I guess really one of the main things about our centre is it, we embrace the whole family and it's a place really for parents to come and meet and network and uh, create friendships and communities. And we have a lovely family room here where people can just hang back after class and feed their kids, uh, they can pop in and make a cup of tea, so it's, it's more like a home from home, really. Yeah, that's what so I love about it, Lorraine, it really is about a community support it's not just about the practical supports, but it's about knowing other families, and not just for the parents, I imagine, but for the kids themselves Yeah, absolutely, and you can, we can see, I mean, there's great friendships already being made, and uh, I think, you know, it's great as well to see some of the, uh, some of the, the, the parents of older kids chatting to the parents of younger kids, and you know, just tell them how they get on. And people talk about, you know, different things that are working for them. And, and it's, it's really, it's nice because I guess the parents, uh, it's a kind of a support network as well as, 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 as friendship. So tell us a little bit then about the 21 Faces campaign. What's it all about? Well, uh, it's sort of, we're in our third year now of this campaign. And the campaign uh, features 21 children who use the services here at the centre. Um, when we started, uh, the youngest child was nine months and the oldest was nine, but now they're two and 11. Um, and basically, it celebrates the uniqueness and diversity of children with Down syndrome. We're asking the viewer to look past Down syndrome and see the child and see their potential. So we've created these 21 beautiful portrait photographs and every year we take uh, another, another batch of portrait photographs. And we also have, uh, the campaign is supported by testimonials from uh, the children's parents or their extended family members like grandmothers and aunties and uncles and even special needs assistants as well. Um, and it also provides a fact file about each of the kids. So really the idea is by making it personal and by showing you these children's lives and their likes and dislikes and, 
you know, how they've really been getting on over the last year. We just hope to break down, you know, that this isn't just a child with Down syndrome. This is a child, first and foremost. And if she loves hip-hop, um, her favourite word is no. And, you know, just like all kids, she's got her favourite things and hobbies. And, uh, and you know, it's all about really the challenges as well that the children face and, and that they, they get through during the year as well. In terms of, you mentioned, Rain, obviously this is in its third year, the campaign. What sort of response have you had in the previous years to the 21 Faces campaign? Well, we've, I suppose the first year it was a, a, a very a novel campaign and we had a great response. Um, and uh, again, actually, it, yeah, last year we got a good response as well. The campaign is supported by Dublin Bus, which is great. So they actually put uh, 500 posters up of all the kids, individual posters through their buses. Um, we have an outdoor poster campaign, and this year Dunstores um, have gotten involved in a very big way, um, and they've actually they've got a photo exhibition in Cornell Court Shopping Centre, but they've actually festooned the shopping the outside of the shopping centre and some of their premises in town with massive posters. Um, so that's given us an even better platform really to promote it, and more people are seeing it. Um, so no, it's, it's gotten an absolutely fantastic reaction. We're getting a, a lot of lovely calls and tweets. Um, from parents that have kids with Down syndrome that, you know, just saw the campaign. Um, And it's great because I suppose really the the main thing about the campaign is to challenge some misconceptions about Down syndrome and for people to, and one of the main ones would be, you know, that children with Down syndrome are all the same, they're a homogenous group, but they're not. We're trying to individualise it and show the personalities and these aren't just children with Down syndrome these are children first and foremost I know that's a big part of the campaign as you say is just to see the personalities tell us a little bit about some of the children that are, are part of the 21 Faces campaign and their little personalities yeah well we've got um, a little boy called Joshua Cousin uh, he's six and uh, his, his likes he loves uh, his, his likes are his dog Roxy Molly his cat he loves visiting his nana and papa and um, his favourite word actually is no. <laughs> so Joshua is a bit of a character. Um, he's he's just finished junior infants this year, and his mum Trina wrote a lovely testimonial about you know really how the whole school it was it was a really um, uh, a lesson in inclusion this year. The best of the morning show with Wendy Grace on Spirit Radio. The obesity crisis amongst children in this country is growing. Recently, there's been discussions about making sure that vending machines with junk food aren't allowed in schools. I think most parents would be surprised that this is allowed in the first place. I chatted earlier on in the week to Helena Donnelly, who's involved with the Irish Heart Foundation, and she talked to me a little bit about how we can move forward in helping our children stay healthy. But she started off by just telling me a little bit about the facts and figures. One in four children, primary school children, are overweight or obese in Ireland. And we're um, on, on par to be one of the most obese countries in, in the EU. And I suppose why the Irish Heart Foundation is concerned about this um, is because, I mean, we're, we're here to prevent heart disease and stroke. And children who uh, suffer from overweight or obese problems will become the, the, the adults of the future who have those problems. So that is why we are concerned about it and we're trying to do something about it. Um, I suppose... Oh, the, the report you mentioned is from the Joint Directors Committee on, on Education and Skills, and they've recommended um, a, a lot of measures uh, for schools to undertake and for governments to undertake in their policies. And I suppose we have been working closely with the committee. We would have made a submission to them. 
Um, last year in, uh, on this topic of child obesity and we pointed to research that we had done in schools in 2015 and what we had done is we went into schools in 2015 and we uh, we found out exactly what type of foods they were giving out to kids um, in, in secondary schools and we found that 47% of those schools in 2015, the figure has changed since, uh, did have vending machines Which full I of think, junk food. I think that would kind of shock a lot of people, Helena, because mm-hmm. when I first read the story about, you know, getting rid of vending machines in schools, I thought, surely, why would you kind of have that temptation there? I know here in our office, we used to have a vending machine. It's gone now. And you know what? Uh, no, I'm sure it's no different for kids in school than it was for me. But when it's there, you're tempted to pop tempted. the money in and eat of it. Of course. And uh, I suppose what we do in the Irish Heart Foundation is we recognise that schools are trying and that oftentimes what happened was they, they were being paid uh, to host these and uh, they were getting a fee to have these vending machines in the schools and what the Irish Heart Foundation does is we won a Happy Heart at School Catering Award where we work with schools and we help them kind of come up with um, healthier choice options so that works really really well and I do know for my school team that their feedback is that schools are trying and that number is coming down but I suppose what we're trying to do is not point the finger at schools but we're actually trying to say to government and what the, 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 fortunately this Oireachtas Committee has come out in support of is that there has to be a national standard for the provision of school uh, of food in schools. And there's and currently uh, nothing, is there, Helena, that kind of says, you know, don't be having kind of sausage rolls or pastries or all no, that No, it stuff. tends to be school by school. And what we want to see, I suppose, is more financial support for schools. So, for example, we lobbied hard for the sugar tax to be brought in this year. As we all know, there's a, there's a new charge on um, sugar, sugary drinks. And um, I suppose what we want to, what we are lobbying hard for is that this money is invested back into whether it's in schools or whether it's outside schools into healthy eating initiatives. So to support people to, to, to eat better. And we're seeing that there is a problem in terms of accessibility of food, you know, ch- cheap, healthy food. I mean, we all know if we go to the supermarket or if we go to any schools and we look around, we see, you know, chippers and we see takeaways directly across from them and so we can't point the finger at schools there's definitely a societal problem in terms of our planning planning for healthier options and it's, it's, it's a sad side of affairs that there is actually quite a lot of junk food marketing to children whether it's through takeaways outside their schools or whether they're being bombarded by marketing itself and that's one of Online. the things I remember a few years ago, Helena, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but I remember, I think it was Tesco saying, we're going to take away junk food from at the checkout tills because that's where kind of mums and dads get the pressure saying, can Absolutely, I have this? Yeah. And, and how those small things can have a big impact. But it's interesting what, or what has been the reaction at that point. And I think most people would agree, you know, with the sugar tax, you know what, I don't mind being taxed on sugary drinks if that money, as you said, could be used to actually promote healthy eating and just a better under understanding but it, it, there is a chance that it could just end up in the general exchequer and just be wasted that money Absolutely. Now, at the same time, I mean, the sugar tax is a great initiative because it's bringing that conversation forward, a bit like the plastic bag levy, you know, making people aware, actually, this, this, this con- consuming of sugar and sweetened drinks is not, is not healthy. And what we've done is we've actually normalized the amount of junk food that we actually consume. So what we're trying to say is we're not pointing the finger at schools. We're not pointing the finger at parents. We're saying that this is a bigger issue and that we need to address it as a country and I suppose the number of things that we're suggesting is we, we lobbied hard for the introduction of the sugar, sugar tax and we're asking for that to be reinvested now in healthy eating initiatives whether it's helping schools or helping communities 
um, you know, address um, address the problem of healthy eating. Um, we're also calling for um, what your listeners might be interested in is the Stop Targeting Kids campaign. So it's looking at bringing in stronger legislation to regulate um, marketing to kids on TV, on radio and on, on, online. So at the moment we have a 6pm watershed which stops junk food marketing companies advertising to children on TV up to 6pm. But it's only covers certain shows and as we all know there's lots of shows like the World Cup or um, you know X Factor that are shown after 6pm that lots of children watch and junk food advertising is proliferous. There's also the online marketing which we all know children now have their own smartphones, iPads, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter accounts and they're all being used now more and more and more to target children with uh, and young people with um, um, unhealthy foods. So what we're seeing is this kind of um, normalization of junk food marketing, whether it's in checkouts, whether it's in, uh, around schools, whether it's sponsorship of Family Days Out. And we at the Irish Heart Foundation are calling for the government to do more on that. So we're working closely with them. And that's why we welcome this report, because we could see actually here we are talking to the government about about the problem that exists and there is a lot of vested interest and unfortunately we're not the most powerful people in this conversation but we are trying hard and we really welcomed the Joint Directors Committee coming out and saying we absolutely agree based on what the Irish Heart Foundation is doing that we need to do more. The Best of the Morning Show with Wendy Grace on Spirit Radio. There was a discussion this week in government about a document that was published that was looking at the 2015 Gender Recognition Bill. So we've been hearing discussions this week on how best to care for the health and well-being of those who identify as transgender. Well, we chatted to Dr. Peter Saunders, the Chief Executive of the Christian Medical Fellowship, about what is the evidence in relation to how best to care for people who feel this way, who feel this way about their gender. Well, Dr. Peter Saunders started off by talking a little bit about the history of those who identify as transgender and then went on to talk about some of the evidence to say what treatment works best. But the condition uh, which we used to call gender identity disorder has of course been known about for for decades. I think what's new is the huge new interest in it and the fact that the whole debate has got into celebrity culture. You've had some very prominent people declaring themselves trans and there's a whole a transgender ideology movement which is changing the way that people think about it. But, but uh, no, the phenomenon is, is not new at all. And as a doctor who's worked in surgery, I've you know, looked after transgender patients many decades ago when I was training. What has been the treatment in the past and is that changing? Well, it is changing. And, and the key question here is what is transgender is a trans woman really a woman trapped in a man's body or is she just really a man who has an unshakable belief that that uh, he's a woman if you like that's the key question and if there's a disconnection between the body and the mind then do you try and shape the body to fit the mind or do you try and shape the mind to fit the body and in the past it's always been the, the second so uh, the treatments have concentrated on things like counselling and psychotherapy to help people to be reconciled with the body that they've been born into. But there's a shift now being being pushed really by this big international transgender movement to try and change the body to match the person's beliefs by giving them, first of all, puberty blockers which stop puberty developing and then giving them hormones from the opposite sex to change their body and then uh, ultimately also a lot will go on to have surgery, either top or bottom uh, surgery. 
If we're talking about a move away from the types of treatments you've been talking about to things like puberty blockers, what evidence is there to suggest that this is the right road to go on? Has there been a thorough kind of um, scientific and medical research being done to say this is the better path for an individual who's in that situation? Well, as you can guess, this is hugely controversial at the moment and the medical profession is divided on it. Uh, I certainly identify with those who, who think that the way we thought about it previously was much more accurate, that this is, this is a problem of, of thinking and that we shouldn't be changing the body to, to match the, the beliefs. And, and the, the fact is that we don't really know the long-term effects of this, um, especially puberty blockers, giving hormones over long periods and surgery. The long-term follow-up trials have not been done and, and we're embarking on what is, in a sense, a huge medico-social experiment without really the evidence. And, and that's one of the, the big concerns that I have. Well, of course, none of these treatments change the underlying biological fact that uh, females have XX chromosomes and males have XY chromosomes. And they have all the, the body parts, uh, both internal and external genitalia and, and the hormones that, that match with that. So in a sense, what you're doing when you give a man, a biological man, uh, female hormones like estrogens, you're feminizing that man, but you're not changing the underlying biological reality. I think one of the big concerns with children, uh, not just the fact that these haven't been tested long term and we don't know what the effects are going to be of, of, um, of these hormones, for example, on fertility, on heart disease, these sorts of things. There was a paper out last week suggesting that, that uh, trans men who have, or trans um, biological men who are having female hormones are at higher risk of, of heart disease. But with children, the vast majority who have what we call gender incongruence, which is a, a, an unhappiness about the sex that they have, will actually grow out of it. So 80 to 95% of children, so if you like, 9 out of 10 who experience discordant gender identity will come to identify with their body sex in time. And so whatever your view on this, that, that is a very strong argument not to rush into these, these treatments and, and to make sure that, that people are given genuine informed choice. And I think one of the big concerns about this is that we get people of transition without knowing the long-term effects. Some of them are then wanting to detransition or they find that it doesn't actually help their underlying uh, you know, problems and unhappiness. And, and one of the things we do know that, that is not debatable about transgender or gender identity disorder is that people who suffer from it suffer from a whole lot of other mental health conditions also in much higher percentage than the general population, like depression, anxiety, substance abuse, self-harm, suicidal thoughts, personality disorders, even autism in, in some. And in many of these, the problems do not resolve with so-called gender reassignment, hormones and surgery. And in fact, they, they are dealing, uh, I would say, only very superficially what is often, with what is often a very deep psychosocial problem that doesn't lend itself to quick technological fixes. And we should not be rushing in where angels fear to tread. Well, one of the most frightening statistics is that 41% that of people who identify as transgender will attempt suicide at some point. Now, that's 10 times the normal population. And people have had transition surgery are 19 times more likely than average to die from suicide. 
Now, th- th- those are those are stunning statistics, and and they underline the fact that that uh, you know this is this is not a quick fix that works for everyone, and and you sh- you shouldn't be misled by a few testimonies of people who are saying that this has been the answer for them. It's a very complex problem. The best of the morning show with Wendy Grace on Spirit Radio. When you think of a 30-something-year-old woman with a few children, fit, healthy and full of life, the last thing you would probably think of them being at risk of is developing breast cancer. And I think for many of us, when we have something niggling at us with our health, often we put it on the long finger. I chatted to Anya Laman earlier on in the week about her incredible story. She shared with me what happened to her when one day she realised that she had a lump in her breast and it would have been something that like many of us she would have ignored however a bit of coincidence meant that she was actually going to the doctor anyway but the story for her could have been very different had that not happened Anya Laman shares her story of having breast cancer that's what I thought of I thought it's just a black duct nothing really to worry about but just as luck would happen I was going to the doctor the next day and I kind of said I got into the bed with my husband and I kind of was laughing with him because I had the whole family booked in for different reasons and I was like you know I was just joking with him and saying you know I think my body's feeling left out and explained to him I was after finding this lump and I was even laughing with him and joking and saying you know it's probably just a block duct but seems as though we're at the GP tomorrow I'll just mention it to her because I was the only one I hadn't booked in for an appointment so, um, and do you think if you I, hadn't booked in on you, would you have put it on the long finger? Would you? Oh, definitely of, yeah. would have got put it on the long finger. Absolutely, there's no way I would have kind of went just for this because in my head, and even right up until we got the diagnosis, my, both myself and my husband were like, "Oh, it's just a block dust." You know, I'm young. I'm, you know, I was 36 at the time. You know, I had breastfed all my three children um, you know which they say is obviously one of the, the, the best things you can do to kind of nail yeah, your voice breast it cancer it lowers your risk of breast cancer yeah, it? yeah 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 and um, so like the whole time we were just we were really just kind of laughing and joking about it thinking like you know oh you know it's it's just one of them things like you know and I, I really wasn't concerned and even when they sent after seeing the GP and she referred me to Vincent's Hospital we and I was going through the biopsy, the mammogram and the ultrasound, we were still not thinking it was anything. Were you at the time they're, kind of thinking, oh look, they're, they're just being cautious type of thing? They're just being cautious. They're going a little bit overboard, in fact, is what I was thinking. You know, because as I say, it wasn't like the pea-sized lump, it was just more like a mass of tissue. It was the only thing it was that uh, it was new, you know, it wasn't there before, like, you know. So what um, happened next then when you were you were sent to Vincent's, as you say, on you to have the biopsy yeah. and everything? What happened after that? Well, we the, the after I had the biopsy mammogram and ultrasound, it takes about a week to 10 days for the results of the biopsy to come back. Um, now, straight away after I had them, I did meet my consultant and they generally she said to me, can give you an idea there and then before the results come back of, you know, what they think it might be. But with me, she said, because I'd just finished breastfeeding, that she they just really didn't know and we'd have to wait on the results. So it was about a week to 10 days later, we went back in for the results. And um, we, again, were just sitting outside waiting to see the consultants and kind of laughing and joking about it and stuff. And then we went in and our world's changed and that was it. Like, you know, we... I was diagnosed with um, invasive lobular uh, breast cancer stage two. I couldn't believe it. Like myself, my husband were just in complete shock. You know, and so uh, uh, and and I think most women would be on you, and that's probably 
one of the things that you must think about, gosh, if I hadn't have been going to the GP that day, because uh, yeah. did they catch the cancer kind of at an earlier stage where it was more treatable? They did. They did, very luckily. So um, now it had actually spread to my lymph nodes, but it hadn't gone any further. So the first point of call is what they wanted to do was a mastectomy with the auxiliary clearance of the lymph nodes. So that once they did that, they were happy that they had actually got it all. Um, like I had a number of scans, obviously um, full body scans and stuff like to, you know, so we knew it hadn't gone any further than that, which we were very lucky at because, as I say, had I not got it checked out that day, then, you know, it would have spread further. And I, you know... It, it, it could have been a completely different outcome for for me and my family. Like, so it's it's we a scary thought. So, so in uh, terms of just your own experience, how how is your health now, and what's the kind of prognosis for you now, Anya? Well, we we went through um, a relatively tough year, as I said, with the the surgery first of all, and then we went through twenty rounds of chemo for ACs and 12 taxols. Um, now, there's two different types of chemo. So the first type, the ACs, were really, really tough on me and I literally just kind of got every side effect going. Um, I felt so, so sorry for my poor husband at that time because I was, I was just useless. I couldn't really do much, even with the kids. Like, um, I was kind of, you know, after I'd have it, have it, I'd be in bed for nearly five days afterwards, literally just getting out of the bed maybe to get sick or whatever. Um, then after that, I moved on to the taxol and I did start to feel a good bit better after that, which was great. So at that stage, I kind of said, right, you know, I had literally done no running or swimming or anything since the diagnosis because I'd just been in a state of shock, really. So I, I knew I'd kind of let my fitness and my health go. And I said, well, you know, we have beaten this. They got it with the surgery. So I'm just going to obviously get back to the way I was and not let it get you know, take any more of my life. So I started to try and go back running a little bit, but I was very, very slow and I wasn't getting very far. You Maybe one and a half to 2K, if at all, and it was very, very slow. So um, I just, I kind of persisted. I'm kind of stubborn that way. My husband will often call me that. Um, but so I just kept going and kept going and we finished the chemo. We finished five weeks of radiation which was every day Monday to Friday for five weeks and um, that was kind of tiring as well but I just kind of kept going with that and tried to keep up as you know a little bit of fitness as well and um, I finished my last treatment on the 25th of June where you know I've gotten the all clear and my prognosis is great but that's all down to the work of the great staff at St Vincent's Hospital and the fact that I just happened to be going to the GP the next day and mentioned it. Oh, but, what's um, the message you'd like to get out there, Anya, to women who are listening to the programme? Just if they have any concerns about anything to do with their health, not to put it on the long finger and just go and get a check. The Best of the Morning Show with Wendy Grace on Spirit Radio. Thanks for listening to our Spirit Radio podcast. Don't miss out. Subscribe today. Find out how at spiritradio.ie.